Tennessee just sounds perfect. Whether that's live music, the crack of a campfire, or kids laughing on an adventure. To start planning your trip, visit tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. Let's hear it for the man, the myth, the legend, super producer, Mr. Max Williams. (laughs) Tag is out, indeed. Uh, We are returning to our ongoing exploration, our continuing mission to learn more about the funny little things called micronations. I'm Ben, you're Noel, and uh, where are we traveling to today? Oh, to a principality, right? Uh, governed by no less than a prince. Not a king, though, right? Like, it's weird. Mo- Monaco. We're talking about Monaco. Many people might know it as a vacation destination for the rich and famous. Uh, it might conjure images of fine foods, spreads of caviar and uh, and charcuterie boards and such, and uh, gambling, copious gambling. Right. For many people, Monaco, the world's second smallest country, is often thought of as a little more than a racetrack and a uh, very fancy casino. Turns out Monaco, which has been an obsession of mine for quite some time, is the most densely populated country in the world. In fact, it's got a lot of... uh, Well, depending on the metrics, it's got a lot of strange, anomalous neat little statistics but if you look at it on the map this little this little thing right there between Italy and France one of your first questions would be how did this tiny town become a country out of all <laughs> the tiny towns in the world why this one why not Poughkeepsie and uh, it turns out there's a reason for that you you're absolutely right Noel it is still Uh, ruled by a family, monarchy style, ruled by the Grimaldi family. It's a picturesque little coastal nation. We said it's best known for the casino and the racetrack. Maybe a better way to think of it is it's best known for the tourism it attracts and for being home to so many very wealthy, famous people 
who love not paying taxes. Oh, man, that was actually news to me, the idea. Yeah. I mean, we, we know about tax shelters and tax havens and offshore accounts, but no, uh, the Principality of Monaco uh, got rid of the income tax um, at a certain point, which we'll talk about historically. But speaking of history, the term crossroads of history often comes up. It's a little bit cliche, um, but it really is kind of true when it applies to Monaco. Uh, the Ligurians were an ancient people who actually settled in Monaco, and they did because you asked about why this little town, why this little slice of land. They settled it because it was a, a very strategic location of something called the Rock of Monaco. Uh, and evidence of this occupation by the Ligurian people was actually discovered in uh, some cave paintings in uh, what is called the St. Martin's Gardens. Uh, they were a, uh, a, a, a clan of mountain dwellers. They were very hard workers. They were builders. And they were also very good at managing resources. The website, the official website of Bonaco's Tourism Board uh, referred to them as uh, possessing great frugality. And also they point out that is a trait that the people of Monaco carry on to this day. Yeah, the Monegasque, they're called M-O-N-E-G-A-S-Q-U-E. It's always kind of an art and a science to me when when we, in English, try to figure out what the citizens of a place are called or what they refer to themselves as. Yeah. Now, the Ligurians were from north, uh, like a northwestern area of modern-day Italy, and if we look at the 6th century, we'll see that the Phocasians, Phocasians, I hope I'm saying that uh, not too incorrectly, P-H-O-C-A-E-A-N-S of Massalia, founded a colony they called Minoikos uh, that became a hugely important port on the Mediterranean coast. And if you look at the Greek translation, that that roughly means single house. And that's that's not because there was just one house there, one huge house. It's not that Monaco was always super small. It's because they wanted to enforce this idea of self-reliance, self-sufficiency, and sovereignty. And there are a lot of ancient myths about this, which I love. Like Hercules was one of the most famous original patrons of modern-day Monaco. He passed through the area. Uh, I, I was watching some really fascinating documentaries about this. There's not actually a temple to Hercules that people have found in the area, but uh, there may be one. We probably will never know because the area is so densely populated and the soil is so rocky that it's unlikely they're going to make any excavations to find one. Yeah, it could be hiding in their hills. And there is a port, the largest port of the region is named the Port of Hercule. And uh, once again, adding to the whole crossroads of history uh, vibe, Julius Caesar is said to have stopped in uh, Manoikas um, after he finished his campaign in Greece during the Gaelic Wars. And of course, once the Western Roman Empire collapsed in 476, Monaco was then kind of pillaged by the uh, Saracens um, and other barbarian tribes. Then in 975, once those uh, invaders were driven from the lands, 
the area was reclaimed by, you guessed it, the Ligurians. They love the place. You know what I mean? They're like peas and carrots with Monaco, Mm -hmm. which I'm sure they said. Uh, And you can catch a lot of Easter eggs about Monaco in Forrest Gump, the novel, not the film. No one fact check us. Monaco is, in fact, older than France by 500 years, almost half a millennium. And if you looked at it centuries ago, you would see that Monaco is about 80% larger than it is today. As soon as we mentioned France, we stumbled across something that a lot of people here in the U.S. might be confused about. Monaco is not part of France now. Historically, it had been part of France, but in 1215, it became a colony of Genoa due to a land grant from Emperor Henry VI. And this is when the Grimaldi family settled in Monaco in 1297, and ancestors of that family have controlled the Principality of Monaco for over 715 years now. If you think about it, you could say Monaco is a family business, and the current prince probably wouldn't get mad at you for saying that. Yeah, this is interesting to me because, you know, we think of uh, royal lineages and all of that and God-given rights to govern and and all of that and to lord over underlings. But uh, it's a little unusual, I guess, for like a not previously considered to be royalty family is sort of granted that status sort of overnight, right? Uh, Unless I'm misreading this. Were the Grimaldis just sort of like, you know, uh, a moneyed family that was was gifted this land and then decided to make themselves monarchs? Or how how does that work exactly? Uh, They won it in a game of horse, uh, which is very popular, uh, (laughs) which is a very popular predecessor basketball. Of course, I actually finished runner-up in that competition, and Uh, I am still very bitter about it. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. I wish you guys were not talking about it on air, but I guess we're doing this. Well, we're cooking live. Sorry, Max, but it's time the people learn the truth. Uh, so Monaco is, without sounding too anti-monarchist or anti-royalty, which I very much am, part of this uh, goes back to the fact that it was considered impossible or ungodly or barbaric for a country not to have a royal family ruling it of some sort. and then. The idea of rightful claim to land almost always went back to the ability to conquer it. Right. Let's get into this because they are the oldest ruling house in Europe from 1297 up to 2023 as we record this podcast. And for a long time, their rulership was going to be phased out if they didn't produce heirs. There's a lot of pressure to deliver on the Grimaldi clan. Uh, It wasn't until 2002 that France made a new treaty or modified their existing agreement, and they said, okay, if the Grimaldi family doesn't have heirs, Monaco can still be independent. Because for years and years and years, the deal was that if you are a Grimaldi and you don't have kids and there are no Grimaldis to rule Monaco, boom, France takes over. Uh, and this is, this feels like it was kind of a um, ad hoc solution, you know, where they said, okay, you, the Grimaldi family, you did a good job, but when you're done, we're going to return to the state of affairs as it stands. 
But yeah, you ask a great question. So here's what happened. This guy named Malizia, uh, which in Italian translates to the cunning Francois Grimaldi. He plays this huge role in a conflict. There's civil strife in Genoa between these two big deal families. A lot of people take refuge in Monaco. Because of that strategic location, right? Right, because of the rock. Mm -hmm. There's a fortress up there. Yeah, it looks really, really cool, too. Do uh, check it out online, folks, if you get a chance. It looks neat. So there are these two families, the Gilf family and the Gibellin family. What do you think, Noel? Yeah, I was going to say maybe Gelf and Gibellini, uh, but I think we're probably both uh, parking our cars in the same garage, as our friend Chuck would say. Mm -hmm. Chuck Bryant, uh, pal from Stuff You Should Know, uh, recently appeared on one of Scott Ackerman's shows, I think, on uh, Scott Hasn't Seen, mm -hmm. which is their, their film show. Uh, so the Gelf family has some members hiding out in Monaco. And there's this guy named Grimaldo. He is the son of Otto Canella, who is the consul of Genoa. And he begins this family. In 1133, he says, we're going to start a new house, the house of Grimaldi. So the Grimaldi family already exists uh, before a lot of the strife occurs. But in 1297, this guy, Francois, the cunning Grimaldi, dresses up as a Franciscan monk alongside his cousin and him and his crew capture the rock of Monaco. Yeah, yeah, making a, a demonstrating his namesake, the cunning. He was a man of many disguises. After he passed away in 1309, Francois Grimaldi uh, was succeeded by Ranier I. And then his son, Charles Grimaldi, who would go on to be known as Charles I, uh, is considered by history to be the true founder of the Principality of Monaco. And uh, maybe we should take a second to talk about what a principality is versus a monarchy. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women, creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection, obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X. Visit TomboyX.com. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Snagajob. 
Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, tempt to hire, part time, or full time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Yeah, uh, well, think about the root words, right? A principality versus a monarchy. One is ruled by a monarch. One is ruled by a prince. I know it sounds so so uh, simple, but uh, we're not being snarky here. That's really what it means. Yeah, I, th- I thought there maybe was more to it than that, but that makes perfect sense. So uh, he founded, this Charles Grimaldi, Charles I, founded the Principality of Monaco, and he uh, grabbed up a couple more lands, uh, the lands of Minton and Roquebrune. Roquebrune. Oh, my goodness. Where are these? The pronunciation minefield here today. We're doing our best, folks. Uh, working live, as you say, Ben. So this actually added some uh, area to the region. Uh, Charles I also took on an important part in the court of the, uh, at the time, the King of France. Uh, Renier II uh, actually never went to Monaco at all, and he just divided up the lands between his sons, Ambrose, Jean, and Antoine. Mm-hmm. Oh, and let me note here for any anybody in the crowd who's feeling a little bit pedantic today, you can be a prince and, I guess, still be a monarch. It's just you're not the king. There's not a king of Monaco. There's only a prince of Monaco. So that would be the big the big difference. Well, and I, and I wonder, but is that, like, by design? Because, you know, the kings don't want there to be more kings. You know, this is France. It has a king, and Monaco is so closely tied to France and so geographically connected that maybe it would feel in some way diminishing for there to also be another king in such close proximity. I want to point to a fantastic article by Elise Taylor over on Vogue. Monaco has princes and princesses, but why no kings and queens? And in this article, which I think is a great exploration of this, the author points out that Monaco has always had to ally itself with other larger countries that already have a king uh, and or queen. So they decided originally to call themselves a principality. The rulers of Monaco style themselves as prince and princess. That way, it is less of a threat. It does make them more palatable as kind of a vassal or client state. Got it. So I wasn't too far off the mark. So it's basically just about keeping the, the, the monarchs happy and making sure everyone plays nice together. No one gets too big for their kingly or princely breaches. 
Right. And to jump in here, if we remember with Andorra, there was actually co-princes of Andorra. It's like that one guy, like that bishop in Spain, and then the uh, now president of France are the co-princes for that reason. Because it was a protectorate as well. I think it's just probably a protectorate, like how it's worked out throughout the, you know, centuries of this whole deal going on. Max with the facts. And Jean I, who dies in 1454, is succeeded by a son, Catalan, which we'll, we'll get to in a future episode, maybe. Uh, Catalan's daughter, Claudine, marries a Grimaldi uh, from the Antibes, or Antibes, A-N-T-I-B-E-S branch, named Lambert. And under this rule, Lambert's rule, it's uh, Monaco gets recognized as independent by King Charles VIII of France in 1489. This is a huge, huge deal. It's almost 200 years after our boy Francois the Cunning first uh, captured the fortress over there on the rock. And, <laughs> and every time I say it, I think of Sean Connery. I hope I'm not the only one ridiculous historians. Uh, the Grimaldis finally get sovereignty over this principality. Geopolitically, it's quite a coup. And the Genoese are not happy about this. They keep trying to take over Monaco. Uh, fast forward, Louis Twelfth confirms Monaco's independence again. Uh, he creates an alliance between the princes of Monaco, that's just prince plural, and the king of France. Uh, and then they just keep trying to play the great nations off of each other. Right, because of their kind of, you know, situation tucked there between those nations. And, and uh, Max, uh, with the facts just a minute ago, brought up the idea of a protectorate. So I'm wondering, like, can a place be a protectorate and a principality at the same time? I think the answer is yes, right? Because uh, at this point, because of the disputes with the French authorities, Coming to an end, Monaco was then placed under the protection of Spain. Am I getting that right, Max? Yes, I think you're getting it very right. If I could also answer the question, a protectorate is uh, any state that's controlled or protected by another. So it can have its own, any kind of internal government. It doesn't have to necessarily be like a monarchy. It doesn't have to be, you know, a communist state. It doesn't have to be a democracy or an autocracy. It's just any kind of client state, you know, mm -hmm. and sometimes protectorate can be a dirty word as in um, the rulers of a protectorate may not want to be called that to their right. faces. And they'll say, no, no, we're allies. And then you say, oh, when's the last time you made a, decision the U.S. didn't want you to make, right, in the days of the Cold War of the Soviet Union. The idea of, of, of offering protection also implies somewhat of a shakedown sometimes, right? Like, you know, in mafia terms, if you're uh, paying people, people are paying you for their protection, they're basically paying you not to mess them up and take their stuff. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, 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 we'll protect you, but you should probably do these things, these ways that you, we want you to do. Be ashamed if something happened to your little micronation over there. And they're not all created uh, equally, right? In, in the case of some previous relationships geopolitically, a protectorate might just be 
paying a yearly tribute, or they may have total autonomy on their own eternal affairs. And it's just understood that the larger state, the protecting state, will be obligated to jump in militarily, mm-hmm. or it could be absolutely dominated and it could be, you know, it could be a parasitic relationship with the protector state taking up resources, right? Uh, oppressing the people and their, you know, their ability to speak freely and so on. I mean, the the issues are, it is a good question. The issues are that a protector is not one size fits all. Uh, and Monaco knew they needed to be allied with larger forces, right? And they didn't always get along with these larger forces. There were disputes with authorities in France that resulted in Monaco being placed under the protection of Spain. And dealing with Spain was expensive. Spain put a lot of financial burden on Monaco. They had to pay for the expense of sheltering a Spanish garrison in the fortress for more than 100 years, starting in 1524. And the whole time, the Grimaldis, low-key, are saying, we got to keep having kids. This is all over if we don't don't keep having kids, which is not the most... I don't know. Maybe it's kind of romantic in a weird succession way. Maybe they've got some (laughs) slow music playing, which means there would have to be other people in the room. And they're like, my darling, for the principality. If that's what you're into, sure. So speaking of kids, we've got Lambert Grimaldi de Antibas, who had three sons, very similarly named to the previous three sons we mentioned, Jean, Lucien, and Augustin. Lucien's son, Honoré uh, I, then had two sons, Charles II and Hercule, with that Hercules name dropped there. Uh, he, uh, Lucien, that is, enjoyed a relatively peaceful reign um, near the end of his lifetime. Um, but his two sons, who ruled uh, in succession, you know, one after the other, did not do a particularly good job in in keeping that peaceful um, situation moving forward. Yeah, it's a uh, it's real Game of Thrones kind of thing. These Whenever you're ruling a country, you're in deep water. So his sons didn't sit in the catbird seat for very long. But what you need to know for this is that in 1612, Urkel's son, uh, Honoré II, was given the title Prince of Monaco for the first time. This is this has become the official title of Monaco's rulers, and it's passed on to successors this day. Let's skip ahead. So that's some of the ancient basic history. A lot of other stuff happened, but we want to introduce you to Prince uh, Rainier uh, III in 1949. This guy took the throne of Monaco, and he married a beautiful American actress, Grace Kelly, in 1956. <sighs> May be familiar to some cinephiles in the audience. Uh, and this guy played a huge role in making modern Monaco as we know it today. Yeah, and it was also like, I mean, it, it kind of created the image of the kind of uh, celebrity-driven version of Monaco. I mean, it was really now kind of part and parcel with the idea of American culture. You know, Grace Kelly was a huge movie star, you know, one of the biggest. And now for her to essentially become royalty uh, of Monaco, this was fodder for the tabloids. You know, this was very much like a a front-page story um, that really kind of upped the cachet of, of the micronation 
least in terms of the eyes of, uh, you know, sort of like the way we maybe think of Ibiza or something now, you know, that Monaco really was starting to get that kind of vibe. I mean, it had been for some time, but it was maybe a little bit more of a, if you know, you know, now everyone kind of knew. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Grace Kelly was functioning, I would argue, in a real way as an ambassador oh, yeah. for the tiny nation of Monaco. They also, because they're still Grimaldi's, remember, they also have to have kids. So they have three children, Caroline, Albert, and Stephanie. The youngest, Princess Stephanie, gets uh, a lot of ink in tabloids. And, you know, the the rags that comment on celebrities uh, for her time as being a singer, a fashion model, a party girl in the 1980s. She's sort of a proto Kardashian, I would argue. Anyway, our buddy Prince R also does some important legal work. He reforms Monaco's constitution. He is buffering the economy. And he says, he says, look, we depend entirely too much on gambling. When, Prince R3, I want to call him, uh, when, he, when he comes into uh, his power, 9% of Monaco's entire revenue is coming from gambling. Imagine if 10% of the revenue from the U.S. came from gambling. Anyway, they knock it down to about 3% as the years go on. Unfortunately, Grace Kelly passes away in a car accident in 1982, and the celebrity watchers of the world, the royal watchers of the world, are are absolutely shocked, you know, and, and of course, our thoughts go to the family. It doesn't matter who you are in the world, losing someone to a car accident, losing someone suddenly to any accident oh, is such yeah. a tragic thing to In the occur. prime of their life, for sure. I mean, you know, there, I don't believe there was any kind of conspiracy attached to this like there was in this other case, but it was very much a Princess Diana kind of situation where, you know, the world mourned, you know, the death of Grace Kelly, not only because she was this iconic uh, Hollywood figure, but also because she had taken on this kind of whole other image, you know, of, of being a, an actual, actual facts princess, you know, I mean, that's sort of what every young girl dreams of and uh, dreamt of in those days. And maybe it's a little bit cliche now, but, you know, back in the 40s and 50s, the idea of, you know, being carried away by a, a magical, charming prince, you know, that was the stuff of like Disney movies. And this was a real life case of that. And to have that person taken, you know, in such a shocking and sudden manner was, you know, truly uh, a tragedy, you know, and seen that way. And then really everyone mourned kind of collectively. But uh, the prince did go on and maintained a positive reputation, you know, as a ruler. He was uh, very much respected. He lived to a ripe old age when he passed away in 2005, at which point his son, Prince Albert II, ascended to the throne. So we've sort of eaten our vegetables of tragedy here. Let's let's look at something that probably fascinates everyone who's heard about Monaco, the history of the casino. It wasn't until 1856 that Charles III of Monaco granted a concession to a couple of guys, a couple of French guys, uh, Albert Aubert, and Napoleon Lengua, again, we're not French speakers, uh, to establish 
what was called a sea bathing facility to treat various diseases. These were very popular in the 1850s or in the 1800s in general, the idea that uh, different climates could help with yeah. chronic conditions. And then he said, also, you can build a what they called a German-style casino in Monaco. What we might think of now as just like a spa or like a resort town or whatever. And then you add the casino, that's just kind of taking it to another level. Uh, A German style casino, that was new to me. I guess I've never really thought about that. But I think casinos have been, you know, legal and very popular in Germany for much longer than in other parts of the world. Yeah, I'm not too familiar. I was looking at this. I was not too familiar with what a German-style casino would be, but it seems that most German casinos historically offer all the stuff you would associate with a James Bond film. Blackjack, Baccarat, Hungry Hungry Hippo, Roulette. One of those is probably not true. Go fish. And the uh, the... The initial casino, Rochambeau, Rochambeau, of course, uh, and then uh, estimating how many marbles are in a jar. The sport of kings uh, and carnies. And just just to quickly add, um, yeah, Germany uh, does possess two of the world's oldest casinos, uh, and uh, Roman soldiers in ancient Roman times actually brought gambling to Germany. So I mean, they were kind of the the prototype for commercial scale gambling parlors. This is at your feet. This is on you, Roman Empire, Germany's gambling problem. Your sandaled feet. The initial casino in Monaco is opened in La Condamine in 1862, but it wasn't a success right away. Its present location is in an area called the Caves of Monte Carlo, and it happened, uh, it's kind of like underground Atlanta here in Mm. our fair metropolis, a place that just keeps moving and people keep trying to reinvigorate it and make it cool again. This casino seemed like a good idea. Everybody was on board with it. By everybody, we mean the rulers. But it was not an overnight success, and it had to move around a lot. And this prominence of the casino actually grew slowly over time because for quite a while, the area was pretty inaccessible for most Europeans. Uh, But we'll, we'll learn how the casino became such an important part of the economy. Absolutely. And, you know, sometimes inaccessibility or, uh, you know, things being kind of like isolated in some way can lend an air of exclusivity. Um, but then, you know, you kind of you also need to be able to get there. Right. So uh, we talked about the caves of Monte Carlo in La Condamine, but it was uh, not until the Société de Bain de Mer opened uh, what is now known as the Monte Carlo Casino in 1863. It was kind of the iconic version of this thing. They had an ideal location uh, that was rife for kind of creating that resort kind of type town, you know, a perfect spot for hotels, the arts, you know, and of course, the casino. Uh, It was still a little bit difficult to reach, but that would soon change uh, in 1868 when a link to France's railway system was added. Um, And this 
turned out to be absolute pay dirt because now it was easy to get there. It was never geographically that far. It was just kind of nestled in those rocky, you know, fortressy kind of hills. Now you were able to get there by rail and that created uh, a, a absolute influx of tourists coming to experience it. The casino was such a hit that the Grimaldi family looked around in 1869 and said, hey, why do we even need to get people to pay taxes if they live here? They don't have to pay income tax here. Come on, it's Monaco. We want them in the casino, not dealing with not dealing with the tax man. And the only reason they could afford to do this was because the casino was such a runaway hit. As someone who doesn't personally, um, I, I, I'm not personally a gambling sort. No, uh, I, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by it. And, his, and we can see that this is a huge economic boost, right? They realize this is the crown jewel of their economy at the moment. But but why just offer that? Like, were they being pressured in some way to 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 get rid of it? Like, it just like surely it wasn't just an act of benevolence. It created a feedback loop. We'll we'll get into it in in just a bit. Uh, the it has a lot to do with the demographic of the people who were taking oh, the super rich in, in Monaco. <laughs> yeah, so we'll yeah. get to that in a sec. But like, okay. In in 1911, our buddy Prince Albert won, who was most famous for the old school telephone prank. Do you have Prince Albert in a can? Mm-hmm. I do. I was thinking it was more famous for the uh, piercing. Oh, that's oh, also true. Well, uh, he did he did invent uh, several canned goods <laughs> and piercings. No one fact checked that. I can't believe. Uh, Especially was it though, if, seriously? Especially, this Prince Albert he had the, the penile. I don't. Piercing? He didn't invent that. Uh, <laughs> and also, big thank you again to all the all the cool teachers who play this show as part of their curriculum. Thank you, folks. Uh, Wait, anyway. no, 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 no. It was. Hold on. It was. Uh, let's see. Let's go to MythBuster. I just. I got to know. Uh, just in case. Yeah, this is educational for everyone. In case anyone's interested, we're talking about a very strategically located piercing. It was Prince Albert of the United Kingdom. Yeah, too many princes with the same name. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through six X visit tomboyx.com. This episode of ridiculous history is brought to you by snag a job. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring with access to over 6 million active hourly workers. Snag a job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand Temp to hire, part-time, or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? 
Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Not to malign the monarchesque Prince Albert, Uh, he is the one who adopts the first constitution for Monaco, and he separates, he makes a separation of power, executive, legislative, judiciary. This can sound boring, but the, the thing is, it's incredibly important because otherwise they could be ruling as absolute monarchs, which would be pretty dangerous for the people of Monaco. Uh, Another important political development, the Treaty of Versailles in July 1918. A lot of people have heard about the Treaty of Versailles, but Mm -hmm. one thing you may not know about it is that it gave uh, limited French protection over Monaco and said, basically, you run your indoors, your internal affairs, and we will take care of your outdoor votes, the wider world vote. Monaco gets a vote in the United Nations. It just pretty much is always what France wants. Right. And that's, you know, not exactly mandated, you know. I mean, there's the illusion of autonomy there, right, Ben? Uh, But it's just more like, yeah, you know, if you know what's good for you, right? Yeah, and the rubber hits the road in... World War II, when Monaco is trying to remain neutral and the Italian army invades and occupies uh, occupies the country, the leader of Italy at the time, Benito Mussolini, one of the only bad bins in history. Yeah, he, um, <laughs> spoiler, things do not go well for him, thankfully. Uh, and when- Isn't he like dragged behind a- vehicle or something like that through the streets it did not end well it was not dignified uh after after his regime topples in italy monaco is occupied by nazi germany maybe they just heard about the casinos prince louis did something really cool 
and the people of Monaco deserve a lot of credit for this, uh, Prince Louis II used the police of Monaco to warn Jewish inhabitants uh, if they were being marked for arrest by the Gestapo and allowed them invaluable time to escape with their lives. And they were many people who lived there of a Jewish descent were able to escape due to the assistance of the king and the police. Eventually, the Americans came and liberated the principality. So even, even in the... Um, even in these very opulent places, World War II hit hard. Uh, and I, I just wanted to take some time and and shout that action out because, you know, as a person who is against the absolutely terrible idea of monarchies and royal rule, it's so incredibly commendable, dare I say noble, to see a positive action taken. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, obviously there are tens of, problems inherent in, in monarchies, but I would argue better than fascism most of the time. I guess that you can have fascist monarchies, though. Let's not get it twisted. But like if you have a monarchy that is more or less operating with the benefit of the people in mind, which, you know, there, there were certainly those and there were obviously certainly those that were completely self-serving and did not give two shakes about the people. But uh, it's cool to see uh, folks that are part of that often maligned, fairly, um, system of government, uh, taking one for the team and putting themselves at great risk. I was actually talking with my uh, my partner the other day about, like, how does something like Hitler happen? And, and how were people able to just go along with it? And the short answer is, sure, some people went along with it, maybe out of fear, maybe out of true belief in the ideology that he was putting forth, out of just hate and ignorance, but then there were certainly folks that at great risk to themselves, you know, did not go along with it. But they had to do so very carefully in order to be successful or else they'd be snuffed out instantly. And we proceed to the modern day, right? The new constitution comes out in 1962. It gives women the vote. Okay, so just note that. There was not women's suffrage until uh, the early 1960s. Abolishes capital punishment, establishes a Supreme Court. So people are getting some fundamental liberties. Uh, and our buddy Prince R3, during this is during his reign, he makes Monaco what you could optimistically call a thriving center of international finance. That's what Monaco officially calls itself. Uh, there's a lot. There's a lot in between the lines of those words. But the guy does a, a, a huge number of improvements. There are a lot of major projects like renovating that port we mentioned uh, so that they could get more and more ships to dock there, including cruise ships. Monaco is very popular with cruises. Uh, and then creating cultural centers. I, I, I think maybe to the best way for us to end is to just explore some fun facts about Monaco in the modern day with the hope that the tourism board of Monaco will want to take three plucky podcasters on a trip. Uh, yeah, it's true. You Come don't on. Have to, yeah. You guys know you want to do it. Come on. I do. Bring I on. do. I will, I will gamble if we're in Monaco. It's a win in Rome situation right. for me. We will learn all these pronunciations. We promise. Come on, mm -hmm, Monaco. Yeah. Win, win in Rome or lose in Monaco. So, right. <laughs> so um, Monaco has, like I said at the top, a huge industry in tourism gambling, but also they're deep in banking because 
that lack of income tax attracted very wealthy people, not just from Europe, but across the world. 16% of revenue comes from the banking industry and money management. So like, you know, uh, estate managers, those wealth offices, like a lot of people don't have this, but if you're from a very wealthy family, you may be familiar with the idea of the family office. Sure. That's when you have so much money that you have a dedicated team of people employed privately by your family just to manage mm-hmm. all that uh, all that revenue from your interest and all your tax liability and so on and so on. At that point, your money, your hoard of treasure becomes kind of like an a thinking institution all its own. Unless you think, ooh, this sounds great. I hate paying taxes. You probably can't afford to live in Monaco, right? Like, yeah, sure, you don't you don't pay income taxes, but the cost of living there and the cost of real estate and the, you know, again, it's densely populated, but tiny land, you know, very limited availability, uh, probably prohibitively expensive for the average folks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You can maybe afford to go there on vacation. That's how most people do it. You can also... Uh, you can also sleep in Nice, France, and then just take a half hour ride into Monaco. That's a lot of people will live outside of it. It's funny because a few years back, you guys know I've been obsessed with micronations for a while. I started looking up apartments for rent in Monaco. This is way before we ever did ridiculous history. Um, and the prices aren't uh they're not super affordable, but there are a couple deals that are, they're deals where you could maybe make it work. But the issue is, why would you when you could just commute in from France, right? The people who are living there, part of the reason they're paying that premium is to get out of the income tax liability. And it's really interesting, too. We talked uh, at the top of the show how we're both fascinated by, you know, the uh, the title or the name, I guess, that gets established, that gets associated with people who are residents of whether it be a certain country or a certain state, like Michigander is one of my favorites here in the U.S. Uh, people who were born in Monaco, we talked about this earlier, are known as uh, Monegasque. But there's also a name for someone who's born in another country but has a residence in Monaco. They're called Monacoian. And it kind of makes sense because of the limited availability of resources and land. Um, the natives are actually in the minority. They're only about fi- a fifth of the population. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that population, by the way, I'm sure a lot of people are wondering, it's only like 38,000 people. Mm-hmm. It is very, very small. It's very densely populated. It's a huge conurbation. It also has the highest life expectancy in the world. So far as we know, as a country, 85 oh. and a half years old for men, 93.5 years old for women. Because of the climate, maybe? Because there's some fountain of youth situation? No, they just, there's just a lot of people who can afford the world's best health care. Oh, that's a good point, That's ben. exactly what go. it is, yeah. And if you're interested in the makeup, I guess, uh, of nationalities that occupy uh, Monaco, we are looking at uh, French nationals uh, filling up the largest portion of this pie at 28.4%. Then we've got the native uh, Montagasques at 21.6%, Italians at 18.7%, 
British, 7.5%. Belgian, 2.8%. German, at 2.5%. Swiss, 2.5%. And U.S. nationals, only 1.2%. Because that, you know, that's like new money, man. You know, you got to be like old legacy money to be able to afford to, to rock it in Monaco. I mean, I don't know. I'm just kind of joking. But it's also like these are... This is legacy wealth we're talking about, right? A lot of it, yeah. And also the the current prince and princess of Monaco, they are Olympians. Albert cool. commit, yeah, you'll Max, you'll you'll dig this, right? Uh Albert was in the uh bobsleigh at five different winter Olympics. Uh did not walk away with medals, but Princess Charlene has won three gold medals and a silver medal in multiple different swimming competitions. Unfortunately, she did not get the gold for Monaco. She competed for South Africa, where she grew up. Because, you know, I, I if I'm assuming empathy, which I always try to do, then I could see how growing up in Monaco even if you're amidst all this immense wealth and privilege, you might feel like Ariel in The Little Mermaid, right? You know, there's a wider world out there. You want to go explore it. So sure. So that's why she's probably raised in South Africa and trotted the globe, of course. These people do travel freely. Isn't that interesting, though, because now I guess the law is no longer that, uh, you know, the agreement's been changed uh, where you no longer have to be uh, a legacy member of uh, the Grimaldi family. I'm guessing she married into the family. I would assume so, for sure. But I'm just saying, like, now the future is wide open. I wonder how how is that determined? If uh, if so, I guess that just means there wouldn't be a prince or princess. If, if there's no heir to that family, then is someone installed but it is still going to be an independent nation, but they just would no longer be a prince or princess, right? That's a good point. Like, like what is a hierarchy after this? I mean, granted, the Grimaldis are very good at having more children, as we've learned through the story. Uh-huh. But yeah, that is that is an that is an interesting thing. Like, what happens? It, does the monarch position just cease to exist? It's the um, prime minister, maybe, is replacing well, they, it or they something. Ha- they have a council of regency, and it takes power. This is not super great for anti-monarchists in the crowd. They have a council of regency that takes sort of temporary or interim power until something called the Crown Council, sort of like the fixers that you see in the uh, TV series Secession, until they elect a new monarch from the more distant descendants of the House of Grimaldi. Uh So they'll just have to see how far they need to go back in the genealogy and say, you know, well, this guy was a fourth cousin in the uh, 1600s, so surely he's up on the policy of Monaco. (laughs) He's got to be the best guy for the job because that's how monarchies work. It sounds like the Urals trying to get together and call him Moot. (laughs) <laughs> yes, there yes, Skyrim, Fusto Ra. Uh, so, yeah, if if you want to buy land in Monaco, you can. It is going to be mm, quote unquote can. Yes, yes, yes it is technically possible. It is uh, possible in this universe for you to do so. A square meter of land is going to run you between 50,000 and 100,000 euros. You for a whole house, right? No, that's again, that's you heard you heard it right. Ridiculous (laughs) historians. That's one meter of land. If you want to go to apartments for rent in Monaco, uh, which is this is the old website I was going to, uh, you'll see that. You can rent stuff like a studio apartment for just 5,500 euro. 
Yeah, which is what with the with the old uh, not inflation, but just do the conversion. And I think it's roughly one to one right now with the dollar, or it's it's not far off. But I think it's, it's worth not, a it's little like bit. It's like a one euro is like a dollar ten. Yeah, right now. exactly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, still, wow. that's 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 wild. Five thousand. So think of it like five thousand five hundred bucks for a studio apartment. I mean, that's like way more than in like New York City, you know, or some of the most expensive places uh, in our country. That's insane. Wow. Okay. Must be really nice. Must be nice. But let's say maybe, maybe you're not, maybe you're not looking to rent or buy, uh, but you're looking to be incarcerated. Maybe not looking to be, but you find yourself to be incarcerated. Well, you would be uh, in a a very small group of the chosen few uh, with Monaco's jail holding only around 20 prisoners. (laughs) with the seaside view, mm-hmm. by the way, from, yeah. from from those cells. I wonder what their crimes are too. Uh, you thinking yeah. white collar, yeah, money laundering and financial scams. And this is a neat little twist of the way it's described in Europe. Uh, they are jailed for money laundry, not laundering, just laundering. Um, if you are a citizen of Monaco, bad luck. You cannot work in the casino. You cannot gamble in the casino. A lot of people work in the casinos are coming from France. And <laughs> this is this is so weird to me because they're kind of doing drug dealer rules, right? Don't dip into the product. Right, for sure. Uh, and if you're thinking to yourself, man, this place sounds like it'd be a really great setting for like a heist movie or, or you know, some sort of spy thriller. Well, you would be absolutely correct. Uh, GoldenEye um, has uh, scenes set in Monaco. Uh, films like the 1920 The Black Spider, uh, 1931's Bombs on Monte Carlo. Um, the Red you know, Shoes, which yeah. is not a heist, but still. Monaco is now, I think, there's a great website called TV Tropes, which everyone mm-hmm. should check out. Monaco is essentially a trope now for visual shorthand to show that there are global shenanigans afoot. If something starts in Monaco, then we're talking high dollar spying or heisting or so on. At least that's how it's often uh, featured in the United States. You know, Ocean's 12 has scenes in Monaco. Mm-hmm. Iron Man 2 has scenes in Monaco. And yeah. uh, Monaco gets a cut of the filming. Oh, I'm sure they get something for sure. Yeah, definitely. And also uh, one, one, one last one. Uh, one that I actually haven't seen would have been meaning to. It's on my list. The Alfred Hitchcock directed Rebecca, uh, which won um, a, a best picture. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. Yeah. I think it's based on a novel um, that was very, very hugely successful. I haven't read the um, novel. Yeah, but I, I, I really not meant it. It also doesn't seem quite like a typical Hitchcock that you'd think of. I mean, it's definitely gothic, if I remember. I'd have to rewatch it. Uh, hopefully it's on the Criterion channel, which didn't pay me to say this, but their subscription service is awesome. Unbelievable. I and they have it. such cool rotating uh, kind of curated collections. Also, you know, another one that's good, I'm sure you're familiar with, Ben, is uh, Mubi, which I know sounds silly, but mm-hmm. uh, this is the name, but it has a, I believe, monthly rotating kind of uh, curated selection of really interesting films. Um, and they're constantly kind of moving through. So it's a cool way to just see what's there and check it out because there's always going to be something of interest. And of course, I once again recommend the very imperfect but immensely fascinating Wiki Travel site. If you want to learn more in a, in a very 
strange way about a different country, go to their wiki travel article. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's meant to be a primer for people considering traveling to a place. And the funny thing is, it contradicts itself often because it's crowdsourced. And sometimes you can tell when the guy who owns the restaurant is writing about his own restaurant. And then sometimes you can tell when the information's actually pulled from the UN. But the wiki travel article on Monaco, love it. Love it. It's um, it's pretty interesting. It tells you all the different ways to get in, to get around. You can also see some great amateur travel documentaries on Monaco. You're just a YouTube search away. YouTube, by the way, is the world's second largest search engine after Google, which is weird because Google <laughs> owns YouTube. Anyway, that's a story for another day, another roll of the dice. But I think, uh, I think we should go to Monaco once we get it in the budget. Uh, my I would love to. I, would love, yeah. I mean, the south, I've never been to the south of France in general. Like you said, Nice is another adjacent location, and just that whole area just seems kind of magical. So let's put it on our uh, our to do list. Yeah, sure. I'm heading to. You know, I, I think I have to. Circumstances are going to find me in Italy later in a few. So maybe I can try to get. Maybe I can see how tough it is <laughs> to get into Monaco. What do you have to do? Rent a cruise ship? I'll probably just take the train. Who knows? I might be a distant relative of the Grimaldi family. So we might be there soon because I might be running the country. Uh, Who knows? Yeah, I love it. We might all be. You guys remember the. Um, the cinematic masterpiece King Ralph from 1991 where yeah, I, just, I just remember he eats something called spotted dick and yes. I thought that was hilarious John uh Goodman, I want to say. Yeah, John That's Goodman, right. uh, due to a, <laughs> a royal mishap uh, as the distant, illegitimate descendant of the royal family, he becomes uh, the king of the United Kingdom. I I remember liking that as a kid, and I think it's one of those that I'm not going to rewatch because I want to keep the memory as it is. I have a feeling it did not age well, uh, if, I, do, if, I, if I'm do, not mistaken. Duke of Earl. Anyway, so big, big, big thanks to uh, big, big thanks to our super producer, uh, the possible royal, uh, Mr. Max Williams. Max, it's hard to get in there, but you have citizenship in the Monaco that is my heart, my friend. Huge thanks to Alex Williams, who composed our theme. Christopher Asiotis here in spirit. Eve's Jeff Coates, wherever she may find herself. Uh, and to you, Ben, for, for being my prince. The prince of my heart. <laughs> uh, and... Also, also with you. You know what? We can start our own Monaco with black. Oh, wait, they already have a casino. Shout out to anyone who got that Futurama reference. Who <laughs> would shop it? Uh, we'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. 
True story, the intimate ships of Avalon waterways can go where the big ships can only dream through winding passageways, rolling vineyards, and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.